Thank you, Carlos and Becky. Yeah, we're doing our series in Seven Churches of Revelation. Uh, just before we get to today's part, um, this evening we've got a meeting for those who are members and also for anyone here who considers themselves a kind of committed part of the church. As I said last week, it's been a long time since we've actually welcomed new members, so it might well be that you're not officially a church member, but you feel like you are. You're also welcome. Seven o'clock tonight. And this is the moment where after months, years, we're actually going to do what we've been talking about for a long time in terms of setting out what's happening with the building project for this building in terms of this is when it could happen, this is how much it's going to cost, therefore this is what we need to do. So we would love as many people as possible to be here this evening to get the update on that. This really is kind of crunch decision time for us, so this evening is a very important moment for us together as a church to... Uh, be updated on what it all looks like, what it means, and how we might move forward. So please do be here this evening at 7, if you possibly can. Okay, we're in Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. Lord, I do pray for us. I pray that as we uh, look at this passage this morning, which has some stuff in it which might be difficult for us to hear, I ask that you would, Lord, whatever our personal position right now, in relation to you, relation to other people, how we're thinking about ourselves, I pray that we would know and experience your grace and your mercy at work in our hearts. And uh, Lord, I pray for us as a church, even this evening, as we consider this big challenge ahead of us of what we want to do with our facilities here in order to facilitate further mission. I pray that you would stand with us and help us and you provide for us in all that we need. Let today be a day when we really do know God at work amongst us in all kinds of ways. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Okay, let me give you a summary of what I plan to talk about for the next few minutes here this morning. The church in Pergamon is doing well. They have stood firm in very testing times, and yet they are being compromised by the reality of immorality amongst them. And this is so relevant to us in our context today. We are in a context where there are many people who are faithful Christians, yet who are compromised in this area of life. And the, uh, uh, the kind of the slap in the face of this passage is that Jesus says this puts us in direct conflict with him. And that's not a good place to be. But the Lord also says there's great reward in walking in a different way. And that means that those of us who are seeking to serve Christ need to see things differently. We want to be faithful witnesses like 
Antipas, who's referenced here. Not worldly, like Balak and the Nicolaitans, who are referenced here. Someone has said that worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look, look normal. Worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. And the reality is that in our moment in history, what actually in the eyes of the Lord is sinful looks very normal. And what would be seen as righteousness in the eyes of the Lord seems very odd. And so this morning we need to work through some of that and see how this applies to us and something of the challenge of that. First thing, though, is to think about the city, Pergamum itself. Pergamum was the most northerly of these seven cities, which the Lord addresses in Revelation. And it sat on top of a hill, a thousand-foot hill, and was a very, again, as the previous cities we looked at, a kind of sophisticated place. It had a massive library with 200,000 volumes in it, which was very unusual in that day. Actually, they reckon that parchment was invented in Pergamum, uh, uh, replacing papyrus as the means on which uh, stuff was written. So they had 200,000 volumes in the library there, and it was a place with many temples. There's a ruin of a temple on top of the hill at Pergamum in that picture. And uh, there were temples especially for the worship of the god Zeus and Athena and Dionysus and Asclepius. And Asclepius was the god of healing, and there's actually a kind of a cult of healing in the city of Pergamum, which we could do a whole sermon on the cultural relevance of that for us as well, but I haven't got time to get into that one today. But Asclepius, um, the god of healing, his symbol was the serpent. And you can see the serpent there curling around a staff. And we need to see how this connects with the message that is told us in Revelation. Throughout the vision that is Revelation, there's this figure of the serpent or the dragon, which is Satan. And the serpent, the dragon, Satan, then gives power to earthly political powers, which are described as the beast throughout Revelation. And the beast is given power to persecute the people of God. And so here in Pergamum, you've got Asclepius, who's worshipped as a god of healing, but his symbol is the serpent. The serpent is the dragon, is Satan. And Pergamum was a place which was very hostile to Christians. The beast was powerful in Pergamum, oppressing the people of God. It was the first city in Asia where a temple was built to the Roman cult. A temple was built to the divine Augustus in 29 BC, and there was this worship of the Roman emperors. And Pergamum was actually known as the temple warden, had this reputation in the Roman Empire for guarding the temples of the gods and the temples of the Caesars. And Jesus says in this letter to the church in Pergamum, Satan has his throne here. It's not temple warden, it's Satan's throne. That's the reality of this place. And that means there's a conflict here. Jesus introduced himself as the one who has the sharp, double-edged swords. In the first chapter of Revelation, we have a picture that John sees of what Christ looks like, and it's indescribable, but there's a strange imagery of a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of the mouth of Christ. And Jesus says here, I'm the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And the sword, of course, is a symbol of authority. It's why still in ceremonial events, it's why when the queen knights people, still use a sword. Nobody uses a sword in battle anymore, but it's a symbol of authority. And uh, the Caesars, the Roman Empire, bought a sword of authority, but 
Jesus' sword is sharper, more powerful than the authority of empire. But there's going to be this conflict between the authority of Rome and the authority of Christ. And really the question that the Lord is posing to the church in Pergamum, and really the question then is posed to us, is this. Are you going to be worldly, or are you going to be a witness? Are you going to follow Rome and the beast, or are you going to follow Jesus, the Lord? That's really the question that's before us. Now, this imagery of the beast is seen throughout the Revelation. If you're reading through Revelation, you're confused about the beast. Think of it in these, term, these political terms. We can think about the Roman Empire as being the beast because of how they, the, the Christians were oppressed. We can see it in more recent history. Stalin's Russia, the beast. Mao's China, the beast. Hitler's Germany, the beast. Whenever human power acts in a way which crushes life, that is the beast in operation. And Jesus and the beast are in conflict because Jesus wants to bring life to people, not death, which is what the beast brings. There's an earthly power at play. Empire of Rome, Stalin, Mao, Hitler. But there's also a spiritual reality at work. And this city of Pergamum, in every sense, physically, politically, spiritually, opposes God's and Jesus says that Pergamon is, is so thoroughly sold to worldliness that this is where Satan has his throne. This is where the power of the serpent and the beast are being displayed. Now, remarkably, the church has stood firm in the face of all this. And Jesus commends them. He commends a particular person, Antipas's name. Now, we don't know anything about Antipas, but obviously or clearly the, the church in Pergamon knew who Antipas was. And it seems that he was a a martyr, someone who's had given his life for his following of Christ, and he's described as a faithful witness. Now, again, back in Revelation chapter 1, Revelation 1 verse 5, Jesus himself is described as the faithful witness, and here Jesus describes Antipas as my faithful witness. What we see is that Antipas is like Jesus. Antipas follows Jesus actually becomes like Jesus. He's a witness. He's not worldly. He's following Jesus, not the beast. And we see this close association between Christ and his people. Jesus, who is Jesus? Jesus is the faithful witness. And those who follow Jesus faithfully are like Jesus, my faithful witness, Antipas. And so there's this sense of the Lord saying to the church in Pergamon, well done, well done. You're living in a city where Satan has his throne where the dragon and the beast are displaying their power, and yet you've stood firm, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. But, there's a but, and the but is that there is a compromise in this church and among these people. And the Lord says that they're behaving like the Israelites did in the, ba in the days of Balaam. Now, to understand this, we have to go back to the Old Testament. And I keep saying in this series, to understand Revelation, you have to know the Old Testament. And this is a story that is told in the book of Numbers, Numbers 22 to 24. And Balaam was a prophet, or we might think a kind of a shaman, who was summoned by Balak, who was king of Moab and Midian, to bring a curse upon the Israelites. And Balaam comes, and he is meant to curse the Israelites, but instead he is unable to curse them. And every time he stands up to curse them, he ends up bringing a blessing. 
And uh, it's quite a humorous story because Balak is kind of pulling his hair out and saying, you're meant to be cursing them and you're blessing them. Try again. And then Balaam gets up and he again blesses. And Balak says, you're meant to be cursing and you're blessing. Let's try it again. And again, rather than a curse, it's a blessing. And you think, well, how long is it going to take for Balak to learn that it's just going to get worse and worse for him? There's not going to be cursing. There's going to be blessing for the people of Israel. And then finally, Balaam does kind of give up and he goes back home. But before he leaves, he advises a different strategy. He can't curse the Israelites, but he has got a strategy for undermining them. And his strategy, which he says to Balak, is entice them into sexual immorality and idolatry. That's how you're going to get them. And so in Numbers 25, it tells us, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifice of their gods. And Jesus says that the same compromise is happening in Pergamum. This is what the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans are doing in Pergamum, that some, not the whole church, but some in the church are engaging in immorality and idolatry. And this is bringing the whole community into danger, just as the Israelites have been in danger in the days of Balaam and Balak. And Jesus says a scary thing. He says, if they, they don't repent... I'm going to come and fight against these people myself. Now, in Numbers 25, this story of Balaam and Balak and the Israelites, most of the community are repentant. But there is one man who engages in just flagrant uh, immorality in front of the whole community. It says that most people are weeping, repenting, and this one man brings his midnight lover into the camp in front of everybody, takes her into his tent, and then there's a story which is shocking. There's one of, those, one of these Old Testament stories that shock us in our cultural context. It says that Phineas, the priest, took a spear, followed the man and the woman into the tent, and drove the spear through the man into the woman, skewered them and killed them. That's how it was dealt with. Now, the thing which is then, for us, sobering is that Jesus is effectively saying that he's going to do the same thing in Pergamum. What Phineas did in Numbers 25... Jesus is going to do with the sword of his mouth to those who are compromised in Pergamon. Compromise plays into the hands of Satan, into the hands of the dragon, into the hands of the beast. And that compromise had happened amongst the Israelites, and it was happening in Pergamon, and it can happen amongst us too. Now, what we need here is some explanation because there's some questions that arise here. Sexual immorality is a problem, but what is sexual immorality? Who gets to decide? Who defines what sexual immorality is? And uh, so we need to explore that. And apologies to those of you who've heard me talk about this before. Actually, probably not apologies. We need to keep hearing this. I know myself, I have to keep reminding myself because the cultural tide is so strong, we all forget, actually where the definitions are meant to be and where the lines are meant to lie, even those of us who've been schooled in this stuff for years. And so, actually, I think, sadly, unfortunately, sex is one of those things which we now have to teach on regularly because it is such a big issue in our culture. There'll be others here, I know, who've never heard me or anybody else teach on this, and right away, for some of you, there might be things which are kind of triggering all kinds of resistance and uncomfortable thoughts and opposition to what I'm saying. If that's the case, I'd ask, just hang on for the next 20 minutes, and then afterwards, see 
how you feel, and we can process stuff afterwards if we need to. Now, before we kind of get into it, the first thing to say is to recognize that actually everybody has moral limits. There's a book by psychologist Jonathan Haidt, which had a very big impact a few years ago, a very helpful book, The Righteous Mind, and he talks in that about experiments that he and his team have done to try and understand people's ethical moral framework, what people see as right and wrong and why. And one of the scenarios which he describes is having a bunch of people there uh, kind of questioning, investigating, and, and giving them different scenarios and measuring what they think is right and wrong, and then trying to work out why they think that way. And he gives the example of, uh, of a brother and sister who have sex, incest, and presenting this as a scenario to the people in, in the survey group. And the vast majority of people surveyed say, that's wrong, that is wrong, incest is wrong. And then the follow-up question is, well, why is it wrong? And the interesting thing is that most of the people they put this scenario to couldn't give an explanation. It's wrong, of course it's wrong. Why? Uh, I don't know. Just know it's wrong. So everybody, everybody has some kind of moral limit at which they say, that's wrong. So let's just kind of park that and hold on to that for the next few minutes as I'm speaking. But what we really need to understand is, is why. And, and here we, we hold to what is actually a shocking position, a shocking position in this day and age, which is that no one should have sex unless they are a man and a woman who are married to one another. That is a shocking position to hold at this point in our history. And what I want to do for the next few minutes is try and give you an explanation of why we hold that position and to give a summary of biblical teaching on this and to help you see that sex isn't just a biological function but something which has profound meaning. So I'm going to give you three things, and lots of you have heard me talk on this before. It's a talk I always give when I'm teaching in seminars about this, if I'm taking weddings. It's the same talk because it's so important that sex is meant to be fruitful, faithful, and sacrificial. Here we go. First thing, sex should be fruitful. We often forget this, but actually sex is geared towards reproduction. That's what it's for. The, uh, for a population of a country to remain stable, every woman needs to have 2.1 children. It's 2.1 to allow for the mortality rate. So every woman needs to have 2.1 children on average in order for the population of a country to stay stable. Actually, most countries of the world, that's no longer the case. Here in the UK, the fertility rate is 1.75, 1.75 babies on average per woman. Uh, in South Korea, it's only 0.92. Uh, South Korea is facing a huge population issue. And this is resulting in massively changing population dynamics. It means basically that across the world, certainly across the developed world, there are far more older people and far fewer younger people, and people have far fewer brothers and sisters and fewer aunts and uncles and cousins than they used to. The whole population dynamic is changing, and that affects all kinds of things. Uh, big increase in national insurance payments. Why? Because we've got to pay for social care. How do you pay for social care when you have fewer and fewer people of working age paying for more and more people who are no longer working? All those kind of issues, these are very practical things, as well as spiritual ones. But we have a strange kind of conflicted attitude towards children, I think, in our culture that we idolize our kids, we wrap them up in cotton wool in so many ways, we're so risk-adverse with our children, we 
so terrified they're going to be harmed in some way. And at the same time, often there's a sense in which we can feel resentful towards children because having children means having to take on all kinds of responsibilities. And it really does. I've got four kids, and three of them have now left home, but I still feel responsible for them and still have all kinds of obligations to them. That's just what it means to have kids. It means taking on responsibility. It means taking on obligations. It means taking on all kinds of hassle and trouble and difficulty. And Felicity, I love you very much, and you're practically perfect in every way. But that's just the reality of, of parenting. It is. But the Bible teaches us that taking on responsibility is something which is good and that children are actually a blessing. We see that right at the beginning of the story, Genesis 1.28. God's blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. First blessing in the Bible is a blessing which leads to fruitfulness, having children. Psalm 127, sons are a heritage from the Lord children a reward from him. Not all of us have sons, not all of us have children, but big picture, sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. And actually one of the things we see in this beautifully is that no matter what your family background is, no matter what your story is, no matter how painful your family history might be, you, each one of us, is in some way the consequence of blessing. Because the Lord blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. So you might have come from a terrible family where even your parents disowned you or said, we didn't want you. you, you were an accident. The Lord would say, you're a blessing. You're the result of a blessing. We also have to, I haven't got time to do this all justice, normally this is a day's lectures, but we also have to recognize the pain of infertility. And I know for some here, this has been a huge issue. And just to kind of, again, park that, that if you want kids and you can't have them, how painful that can be. So let me just put that there as well. But to state, as I'm doing, that actually sex is meant to reduce in babies can feel shocking. But that's what it's all about. That's what cute puppies are about and frog spawn and pollen and human babies. It's what sex is for, making more of the stuff, making more frogs and more plants and more puppies and more babies. That is the purpose of sex. And we no longer think of sex in those terms primarily, although pretty much every generation before us has. Now, the biblical pattern is that children should be born to people who are married to one another. And there are pragmatic reasons for that in terms of the outcomes for kids. And to be honest, I don't know any, again, not wanting to in any way get down on single parents, The reality is I don't know any single parent who wouldn't rather have a reliable partner with them because parenting is hard enough with two of you. And to do it on your own just ups the demands in an extraordinary way. So there's those pragmatic reasons, but more importantly, there are spiritual reasons that marriage is meant to be a covenant commitment that is blessed by the Lord. And so we need to see how this kind of holds together, that Sex is meant to be fruitful. Children are that fruit. Sex is meant to happen within marriage because sex is meant to be fruitful. There's this kind of pattern we see in Scripture of what the Lord's intention for the human race is. So that's the first thing we need to see. Sex is meant to be fruitful. Second thing is that sex should be faithful. In the UK now, most... Adults actually are unmarried, and there are all kinds of reasons for that. 
But one reason is that you don't have to be married anymore to have sex. Previous generations, women were the gatekeepers to sex. If a bloke wanted to have sex, and most blokes do, you had to show considerable commitment in order to get access. With the invention of the pill, that all changed. Sex became cheap. Women didn't have the same risks. You're not going to get pregnant if you don't want to, so the risks are lowered. It makes sex cheap. We also have all the other issues of today, which we haven't got time to get into. The impacts of technology, the ubiquity of pornography, the options paralysis caused by swiping left, swiping right, and Bumble and Tinder and all the rest of it. Now, the biblical picture is very different from that. The biblical picture is one of faithfulness. That God is faithful to his people, and his people are to be faithful in response, and that is to be worked out in marriage. And sexual faithfulness in marriage is a key part of that. That there's a, As Christians, we believe that those of us who are married actually, in some way, are meant to live out and point to the prophetic picture of what the kingdom of God is like. The Genesis to Revelation story of the Bible is a story of marriage. Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve. He joins them together, blesses them, says be fruitful. Revelation, Jesus united to his people, the great wedding supper of the Lamb. Those of us who know the Lord and are married, our marriages are in some way meant to point to that bigger picture. If you're married, your marriage isn't just about you. It's about what it points to in terms of what Christ's relationship is to us. There's a prophetic purpose to marriage. And that means that in our marriages, we're meant to stay faithful because Christ is faithful to us. Now, that's hard. How do you stay faithful for the long haul? It's really difficult. And you don't want to get into the place where you just kind of grind out marriage. Oh, keep it going. Another month, another year. Actually, again, it's our relationship with God, which is the pattern. When we come into new life in Christ... That's described as union. We're joined with Christ. We're joined with him. We're in Christ. That's our union. But then there's an ongoing communion, an ongoing enjoying of God, a cultivating of relationship, of getting to know him more, delighting in him, worshipping him, loving him. And the same thing is true in our human marriages for those of us who are married. There's a moment of union the day we get married. But then there needs to be a lifetime of communion, of learning to love one another day by day, month by month, year by year, decade by decade. Now, the churches we looked at last week were Smyrna and Philadelphia, and they were commended for their faithfulness. Pergamum is in danger because they are not being faithful as they should. How we behave sexually is meant to be an outworking of faithfulness. And biblically speaking, marriage is the only place in which that can truly happen. And so that's why Christian teaching has always been that sex is reserved for marriage, because it's the only place where you actually make that commitment of faithfulness to one another in the way which reflects the faithfulness of Christ to us. The last thing, the third purpose of sex is that it should be sacrificial. Now, next week, we're having a bit of an interlude in this series, and going to be looking at Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And Christ's example, again, sets the pattern for human marriage. That's what the Apostle Paul is describing there in Ephesians 5. 
Christ gives himself, unites himself to his people. That's what happens when a man and a woman are united in marriage. There's a, it's, there's a mystery to it because there's an embracing of someone who is different. Christ embraces sinful humanity, joins us to himself. How amazing. A man and a woman, different, join themselves to one another. A mystery which is beautiful. Now, there are many components to forming a marriage, getting to know one another, dating, courting, engagement, the wedding, but it's sex that seals the deal. There has to be consummation. If a marriage isn't consummated, it can be annulled. And biblically, there's something sacred about this. Sacred, sacrifice, it's the same words. And marriage is about seeking the blessing of the other person in priority to our own personal comfort and happiness. It's what Christ did for us, gave himself, sacrificed himself for us. It's what we're in marriage called to do, to give ourselves to the other person before we give ourselves to ourselves. And Jesus teaches us to sacrifice. The question I always ask people if they come to me and say they're thinking about getting married, the question I always ask is, are you... Are you Okay, you feel all lovey-dovey now, but are you determined that you will love this person with sacrificial love for the rest of your life? That's really the question. Don't get married unless you're prepared to sacrifice for this person for the rest of your life. And when you see sex as part of that picture, you can see that sex only really belongs in marriage because that's the only relationship where that kind of sacrifice is being made. It's in marriage that sex finds its true meaning. Now, whether you're married or unmarried, to resist immorality, to resist worldliness, does take sacrifice. It does. And there's so much more we could say about all this, but for me, there's a compelling vision here of what sex can be, should be, is intended to be by the Lord, something which is not cheap, not destructive, not impure, but something which is fruitful and faithful and sacrificial and, in that context, appropriate and good and pure, beautiful and right. But the reality is that we live in a world where we're being constantly trained or catechized, to use the religious word, by the world. You watch the Olympic coverage, you watch Strictly, you watch pretty much any TV drama, and you're being catechized, trained in a very different way of thinking. Worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. You watch the Olympics, you watch Strictly, you watch any TV drama. What is sinful is made to look normal. What is righteous is meant to look weird. And Christian, if you're a Christian, don't be blind to worldliness. Don't compromise like the Israelites did. Don't compromise like some of the people in Pergamum were. Don't bow to Satan's throne. Don't give in to the lies of the serpents and the power of the beast. And Jesus says here that repent. And the good news is that whatever our story, there's forgiveness for us. Whatever our story, there's forgiveness. Jesus doesn't have to fight against us. There can be forgiveness for us. And there's great reward for us. And again, when you see the picture language of Revelation, Jesus says that those who are victorious will receive manna from heaven. The manna was the miraculous food with which the Lord fed the people of Israel 
in the wilderness. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you some of this manna. Jesus taught us, pray, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is saying, look, if, you, if you're faithful in this way, I am able to supply what you need. Even in the fierce temptations of this world, even against the backdrop of the power of the beast and the wiles of the dragon. I can give you what you need. I can feed you with something which is more satisfying than what worldliness offers. And Jesus says that he will give us a white stone. What's that about? Well, this is probably a tessera. Here's a picture of one. These were tokens, and they were used for different things. Uh, You might be given a tessera as an admission ticket to a banquet. The emperor in Rome would give these to a gladiator if the gladiator was going to be set free because he'd performed so well, a symbol of freedom. Uh, In court cases, a juror would throw a white stone into it, um, which was a sign they believed the person was innocent. So what is Jesus doing here? He's saying, look, I'm going to give you a white stone. This is a sign of your welcome, of your forgiveness, of my embrace of you, of my saying that you're innocent. That's what Jesus offers us, complete acceptance in him. There's going to be a new name for you, a name which implies belonging and status. Be my faithful witnesses like Antipas was. Don't be worldly. Now, I've got a bucket here with a bunch of white stones in it in the office next door. I've got a white stone next to my desk, which somebody gave me lots many years ago when they were teaching on this subject, and it's a helpful reminder to me, and it might just help you to have a tangible reminder as we come back into worship. I'm going down the road to 502. I'd invite you to come and, if you want, take a white stone, a symbol of the white stone which one day you can receive from Jesus. The white stone which says access, welcome, forgiveness, innocence, love, grace in God, supply from him. And maybe have that in a place where you can see it each day, keep it by and remind you of what the Lord calls us to, which is faithfulness, which is to be witnesses rather than to be worldly. It might be that you've never responded to Jesus and you're not even sure yet, but you might be saying, well, I think I want to know. If that's you, well, come and take a white stone. And ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. Lord, I pray for us. I pray that you would have mercy on us in this world where, yeah, what is sinful is paraded as normal and and commended and praised. And Lord, where having a different view becomes increasingly difficult and problematic. I pray for us, Lord, that we would be faithful. I pray, just as Antipas was faithful, even in that city where Satan had his throne. Lord, as we see in our culture, in so many ways it feels like Satan's building his throne here. I pray that we would be those who are faithful to you, are your witnesses, are not worldly. And Lord, that each one of us, whatever we need this morning, we'd receive from you your grace, your healing, your forgiveness, your mercy, your strengthening of us. Lord, even as we take these physical stones, may we receive from you spiritually that heavenly bread. Give it to us today that we might stand strong, firm in you, unshaken, believing, confident in our call, and living in a way, yes, which often is very costly, but which is full of beauty and grace. This I ask in your name, King Jesus. Amen.